<sighs> so I was all set up to record this cheery, like, hey, subscribe to our Patreon because blah, blah, blah. And then fucking Schoology. I got another email from Schoology. This is not an advertisement from Schoology. I actually sort of hate them about missed assignments. So instead, you're going to get the real me. Hi. Uh, so I have a lot of exciting episodes coming out on Patreon. For just $5, you can get tips on how to stay sane during college application for you and your kid, expert advice on growing your band from a pretty badass media strategist, uh, an explanation of the controversy of DNA and whether the use of it to solve crimes is actually an invasion of privacy, a closer look at New York's epilepsy colony that really lasted much longer than it should have. Think like 70s, 80s, as in 1970s and 80s, where treatment meant actually you're just stuck here for the rest of your life. And also an early release of a two-part episode where I speak to a psychologist who only learned that her husband was leading a double life when he turned up dead. So... Subscribe to the Patreon at the $5 level. You want to hear any of these episodes. Thanks for listening. <sighs> Text me if you hate Schoology as much as I do. Ugh. My name is Dr. Lindsay Wisner. I'm a psychologist, author, a mom, and still an occasional shit show. You're listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. This is a place for smart, sweary women to talk about stuff that matters. Stuff that can make us uncomfortable, but stuff that helps us to learn and grow and be okay with living in that discomfort of not knowing the right thing to say or do all the time. Thanks for listening. You can also find me on Instagram at psychshrinkmom or at neuroticnourishment. This is season three, episode 12. All expert testimony is merely opinion. Before I introduced Anita Zanin, who's incredible. Um, fun fact as podcasters, we never actually know how many people are actually listening. Uh, and anyone who says they do is fucking lying. Um, but uh, I, I meant to get up early this morning and record this intro. And then I slept late, but I was like, oh, I mean, you know, it releases at 7, I'll, I'll get to it by 7.40. How many people is that are actually going to listen? Well, thank you, dear listeners, because there are more out there that you think. Hope the lack of an intro didn't scare you away. And for everyone else podcasting and for all my other listeners, it's all just a blind fucking crapshoot. And thanks for listening. It's nice to know that you're out there. Here's a warning. If you're not into bloody guts and crime scenes, this episode probably isn't for you. Seriously, just skip this one. Just this one time. In today's episode, I get to geek out with Anita Zanin, an expert in blood spatter pattern analysis. Blood spatter pattern analysis. Don't call it blood spatter. That's just a sign of a newbie or a noob, as my kids annoyingly and randomly refer to someone. Uh, if you're wondering how Anita came to be an expert in this field, the answer is it was totally random, kind of by accident. She majored in chemistry, didn't like to like it, worked in the medical field, still not quite the right fit, was interested in law, but not so much being a lawyer. And when the opportunity came to work with Herb McDonald, one of the most foremost experts in crime scenes, like he testified in the OJ case, no biggie. He also trained Henry Lee, whose name you might recognize from John Bennett Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, Kaylee Anthony. Yeah, Anita jumped. Well, I would have literally jumped, so let's pretend she did. Also, if you are into true crime or if you're just into good damn podcasting, if you haven't listened to Unraveled, hosted by Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter, pause. 
pause this podcast, leave this podcast, head on over there. I will not be offended. Uh, the first season was all about the Long Island serial killer, and I didn't even gag. My other podcast co-host, Mark, and I have a joke that we will never talk about the Long Island serial killer because the case is just so overdone. Doesn't take away from the tragedy, just doesn't make me want to talk about it. But I finished the first season of Unraveled in like 36 hours. It's a fascinating take on the Long Island serial killer case. And in their latest season, season number three, Anita Zanin appears on the show as a guest to explain the facts of forensic science, which are much less glamorous than that story every prosecutor likes to weave them into. It's actually not a law and order episode. It's evidence that may mean one thing, may mean another. So I guess what I'm technically saying in this extremely long intro is that since I know Anita and she came on my podcast and Anita knows Billy and Alexis, my street cred just skyrocketed by association, at least in my mind. So Billy, Alexis, I'll call you soon. Wink, wink. You should check out Anita's website, az-forensics.com. It's really fantastic. It's a perfect resource for the student, the teacher, and the creepy-ass true crime podcaster like me. Thanks again for listening, guys. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know. Uh, like, rate, review, subscribe, whatevs. Thanks for your support. <laughs> So I am so honored and happy and flattered uh, to finally be able to interview Anita Zanin. And, uh, and I got it right. Uh, Anita, I feel like our paths keep like, you know, I don't even know what word this means. We keep having these attempts and then crazy insanity uh, life prevents us from talking, which stinks because I've been really excited, but we were supposed to talk the other night and um, then Facebook died. And because I'm old, I couldn't figure out how to get into my Zoom account without Facebook. <laughs> um, but I know you mentioned it wasn't a great day for you either. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Very near miss in a car accident. That uh, was a scary moment. But you're safe. It banged up, but but you know, bruised but not broken, as we say. You know, not even really bruised. I had a little seatbelt mark. My car has a couple of little dings, but it ended up being a three-car wreck with injury, and I escaped it. Yeah, yeah. It was. I was in the middle lane of the highway. There was a backup on an exit, and there was a car next to me. I was doing about sixty-five. And that pickup next to me didn't see the backup until the very last second. Wow. And he uh, he swerved into my lane as he hit the last car in the in the pileup. So I jerked left hard and I was headed straight for the cement barrier at 65 miles an hour head on, missed it by inches. And then my car was out of control and it took a good half a mile careening back and forth between the middle and left lanes to get it under control. It was so bad. I thought I was going to roll. And when I looked in my rear view, I saw that another pickup truck that must have been behind me did crash into the cement barrier. And and I was the one who canceled our appointment because of Facebook. And you had just had this crazy ass, like horrific. And and also we were sort of talking before, like, you know, I, I feel like so I am like a newly immersed, not so newly, but like in, you know, crime and and death and murder and I taught my 10 year old to memorize license plates so like you know so when you have I can imagine like you are among other things a, a blood spatter expert I'm sure I'm diminishing it but but when you know so much about death anatomy blood science murder you know tragedy I I, I can't I don't, I don't know if in that second you were thinking about any of it, but like later I, I would probably be going to sleep imagining, you know, what, you know, I don't know, maybe trying to science it out. So if I had hit that cement barrier, I would have absolutely would have died at 65 miles an hour, nearly head on, I would have been done. And, you know, it, it's at that time of day, that particular section of the highway is usually very congested. And it's a miracle that there were no cars in the left 
in middle lanes as I was going back and forth trying to get control of it. I mean, it's really, and all I got was a couple dings on my car from the flying debris of the guy hitting the car next to me. And I mean, there's no reason I shouldn't have hit something. But of course, afterwards, I'm sitting there thinking, I I wonder what my car's event recorder showed happened. (laughs) Oh, that is interesting. Are you going to check it out? (laughs) I would. Just curious. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. Um, So, uh, right. So you are, you are owner, manager? Owner owner of uh, the AZ Forensic Associates LLC. I don't know why I said the LLC, it's just habit. Um, And you're in Buffalo, right? I am. Um, And I'm in Long Island. So uh, we share a a name, but nothing else, I believe. Actually, that's not, yeah, right? That's about the similarities. It's like Um, you guys live in another world. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. Um, And, I kind of want to know how did you? I uh, I'm looking at a Google Doc that I make, but you know, but for each guest, and it's my all my stalking. And I said, how did you get into this field? And it's a stupid question, but it's an easy one, and I and I'm really curious. <laughs> well, it was really kind of by mistake. Um, my most of my history is in the medical field. I worked in an ER for 17 years and then on the donor side of transplant for about 15 years. Um, and then when I went back to school, I wanted to go for, um, you know, like the behavioral profiling for, yeah. you know, but there really weren't the programs for that, that there are now. And so I ended up in a forensic chemistry program, which I'm not sure how, because I don't really like chemistry, but <laughs> but that was really all that was around and it required an internship. And I knew that I did not want to be in a lab all day. And as it turned out, the, uh, the man who kind of pioneered this discipline in this part of the world lived right down in Corning, New York. So um, I did my internship with him and ended up loving it. And, and what's his name? Herbert MacDonald. Okay, so uh, you ended up working with him on several cases. Yes, I worked with him for several years and then eventually went out on my own. And um, and here I am 17 years later. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, like I said, I stalked you in old newspapers. Um, uh, and so you, there is, it's funny, I wonder if people really understand where expert witness testimony comes from, you know, it's essentially like you have a business and then when either, you know, either the court system or the, uh, actually, do they have a contract? I know here for like, um, psychologists can get us, uh, it's called a 61B or something. I don't know. It's like a contract to work whereby like released sex offenders are sent to certain uh, psychologists. And so I, I don't know if that's how it works. I, obviously the layperson can hire someone, um, but I'm curious how the, the court handles that. Yeah, you know, it's different in every jurisdiction. Um, like in New York City, they have uh, a list of experts for uh, the assigned counsel plan. Okay. Uh, in Massachusetts, they have something very similar. Um, where you're on a list of people that are willing to work for um, uh, indigent cases and sometimes you negotiate a a different fee schedule for them and things like that. Um, But in other places, either the prosecution or the defense just retains you directly. Right, gotcha. So so it's not often the court, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, I think it's called 64B. I don't know, it's gonna bother me forever. Um, (laughs) You know, well, yeah. while we're on it, I mean, personally, I would prefer if we were appointed by the court to testify about the evidence, because, you know, it doesn't really matter which side puts you up. The other side is going to make you look like or try to make you look like you are saying what you're paid to say. And if you are an honest ethical expert, it shouldn't matter what side puts you up. You know, our job is to explain the physical evidence to the jury, what it can and cannot tell you about a a scene, and then let them decide what that means to the overall case. And so being retained by either side, I think automatically puts the information at a disadvantage because it's seen through 
um, that lens, whether you're a prosecution expert or a, or a defense expert. Right. And this is something that's huge that I have a feeling is going to be the focus of our discussion today because it's a really valid point. Um, you know, I, I also think that sometimes money, you know, a person's finances is, can be the deciding factor in hiring a, a great, you know, expert or a less great expert, but the expert ultimately should be simply providing science. Like, as you said, right. No, you told me, but I mean, but, and you, you know, you wrote an excellent article about that. And the point being, this is science. It's, you know, you shouldn't be able to slant science. I mean, in, in my opinion, you know, I, I was thinking about it and preparing and I thought, okay, you know, research is valid if it measures what it is intended to measure and if the results can be replicated. So you can't slant that. And I know research and evidence are slightly different, but they fall into the same, they should fall into the same parameters of a gold standard, so to speak. Um, and the problem is when it doesn't. Um, uh, but you said something really interesting in this article that uh, you wrote that I'm going to share in my show notes, which is all expert testimony is opinion. Right. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think it's brilliant. Yeah, no matter what expert it is, whether it's a psychologist, a DNA expert, a fingerprint expert, a bloodstain pattern analyst, uh, an accident reconstructionist, anybody, anybody that's testifying it, it, as an expert is, is giving their opinion about what the evidence shows or what the data implies. Um, you know, DNA is often held out as the gold standard in forensic science. But when it's a single source sample, I would say that's true. But when there is a mixture, things become more complicated. And there, there is an element of subjectivity that goes into analyzing that. We're picking out which you know, alleles go with what profile and deciding how many potential contributors um, are, are present in the, in the sample. And so two DNA analysts looking at the same sample might make a different call as to how many contributors and you know whether it's a complete profile and, and that sort of thing. So, so any expert is ultimately giving their opinion and there is an element of subjectivity in all disciplines, some more than others, but just because there's subjectivity and it doesn't make it inherently bad or unreliable. No, it's science is science. I mean, you know, facts are facts, but if you, a lot of the cases that I read about that you, you know, that in which you testified, there was a narrative that had been painted by, um, by, you know, a prosecutor and the, or a policeman or the first person on the scene or whoever it was. And that based on that narrative, uh, the research, the data was sort of structured around it. I, there was a man who, um, he got, he survived a horrible car accident and his wife died. And I can't remember his name, but I, um, you, I remember your testimony. It was in a, a newspaper. It was that the blood splatter looked very much not like he was responsible for her death, but like he was trying to revive her through CPR. Okay, yeah, that was, I think you're, you're commingling two cases. Okay, but... correct me, please. Okay, so who was the CPR? Because, um, yeah. That was, um, that was a former cop in um, Fort Worth that okay. um, was accused of uh, shooting his wife okay. in, in the chest. And, um, there is, it's, it's, we could talk about that case forever. There's so much to talk about, but you know, the, the bottom line is that it was a, a single shot into a clothed source that the wound was in her chest and she was wearing a nightgown and there was a pillowcase wrapped around her neck. And when he called 911, he said she shot herself in the throat, I think, which he had used the, the 
pillowcase to try and stop the, the bleeding he thought was in her neck. And so one of the first things you have to think about is that if he shot her, he would know where the wound was, right? Right. And I wasn't so sure I believed it in the beginning when I first started looking at the case. But as I got into it, there was one photo from the autopsy that, that made me say, you know what, he might have thought the wound was in her neck. Um, there was a, a blood flow line coming from her chest up, up to that little divot at the base of your neck, you know, that fills with blood. And her heart was still beating for a period of time. So that would have still been pulsating. He may very well have thought that was the, the, the wound. Um, and when you have a, a single shot into a closed source, it's unlikely that you'll get back spatter, which is what comes back toward the muzzle of a gun when you shoot something. Um, the, the very small drops get caught in the, in the fabric and they don't travel. And, and almost all the stains on his left shoulder were um, around a millimeter, some smaller, some a smidgen bigger. Um, but those usually get trapped by clothing. We can hear him doing CPR on the 911 call. And if he was next to the bed doing compressions, that would align that left shoulder right over the wound as he's pushing down and breathing into her mouth. So it, she had a perforated lung. So her chest is filled with blood right. and air. And as he's blowing into her lung, that's going to take the path of re least resistance right back out that hole. And so it, that very easily explains the, the blood on the shoulder. You Can know, I 100% certainty that it's not back spatter? No. I mean, the, the very best you can say is that it's the size, shape, and distribution are equally consistent with back spatter or expirated. But then when you look at the case factors, to me, it makes expirated far more likely than back spatter. Which, so to be clear, is that mine? Expirated is when, uh, is obviously when, such as in CPR, where something is um, coming back versus, actually, nope, you explain it. What's the difference between expirated and back spatter? So, so expirated is something, it, it's spatter produced as a result of air pressure. Okay. So it can come out of the nose or mouth or a wound. Um, and back spatter is what can, comes back toward the muzzle of the gun or toward the shooter when you shoot something. And forward spatter is what comes out of the exit wound. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I you did good. I'm not gonna try to explain terms anymore. I'm just gonna ask you. Um, and then tell me, okay, so then correct me, the the man in the car, what was what what was that? What was the yeah, um, the, the thought was that um, she had been bleeding prior to getting in the car because the blood stains on the seat were um, diffused and kind of pushed in. So they, they thought that she had been beaten first and put into the car, which put the blood on the seat. And then when her butt was on the seat, it caused this diffusion of, of blood stains. But um, anybody that knows anything about how you extract people out of a car, um, she had head injuries that were bleeding profusely and she would have been extricated first because she was critical, right? Yes. So the way that happened and, and EMS testified to it, you know, that they lean the seat back and then the backboard goes in they get her on it so her head's kind of over the center and then pull her out through the the passenger door on the backboard and they said they did not cover the wound prior to getting her out so she's still dripping blood and so that could account for the blood on the seat as well as the threshold as they're bringing her out but then when they extricated him somebody would have had to kneel on that seat to get him on the board and and you know with the with the collar and the board and all of that stuff and get him out. So it's the same mechanism, but completely different um, scenarios and and timelines. And you know if if there's a guilty explanation and a and a innocent explanation, that's the definition of reasonable doubt. Right. 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 So. 
it feels, I mean, it feels in some ways like you often end up as a defense witness, which I, I, I think that's because you are open to other possibilities, like, which is how I imagine every, you know, every expert who's testifying or that's how it should be, you know, I mean, on CSI, you know, or law and order or whatever, you know, they, they form an opinion and then like find facts, you know, find evidence that supports it. And that's not obviously how our legal system is supposed to work. And listening to you, it, it becomes apparent that, you know, uh, the way you can shift paradigms in your mind is crucial to, to your job. It's amazing. Right. I, I do do a, a lot of defense work, but um, it's not just because I'm open to other possibilities, but a lot of prosecutors and police departments already have people in their departments that do this work. Gotcha. So they don't often have to hire outside help. But I, I do do prosecution. Uh, ugh, can't talk anymore. I do uh, <laughs> prosecution cases as well. Um, you know, it just just depends who gets a hold of me first. Hundred percent. But if I were a prosecutor, I would want someone who spoke, uh, you know, told a good story, spoke confidently, you know. Um, but you are accurately reporting science, and in order to do that justice, you simply present the evidence, which brings me. To, so uh, earlier this morning, you shared with me, you know, a link to this podcast you had been on, which was fantastic. Also, I love the podcast. It's Unraveled with Billy Jensen and Alexis Linkletter. Um, and I had been waiting to start this season until they got more episodes in. Uh, but for you, I caved. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's really fascinating. Um, it, it's it's. Very interesting. And so the the case that um, that you were had consulted on, and we're going way back to September of 2011. Um, there was a a woman whose boyfriend uh, called and said he had found her dead in a bathtub. There's a bloody palm print in the bathtub. There's blood around the tub. There's a knife under her in the tub. Um, there's a triple A magazine, which I didn't understand the importance of, but fine. And there's cold water. And um, from what I understand, uh, it seems like the medical examiner just kind of shrugged and, um, you know, uh, often things will go wrong in investigations or so I am learning. And uh, her husband makes a very good suspect because frankly in, in my hearing of the retelling of it sounds like there very well may have been I'm sorry her ex-husband which may be because there were some mental health issues there and and other things and um uh and so uh suddenly you know you show up and you testify that according to evidence you know <laughs> And, and you're based solely on evidence. And, um, and I feel like the medical examiner isn't giving much. And, and you also mentioned there's contamination. Um, you also taught me a new term for passive, which is dripping by gravity versus spatter. Um, and then you mentioned that bloodstains don't give you an understanding of someone's level of consciousness, which is the same thing you were talking about with the woman in the car and the, you know, bloodstains tell a possible story, right? Right, there's there's no way that the bloodstains can tell you that somebody was unconscious and rallied. Right. Um, the, the vast majority of the bloodstains in that bedroom and leading to the bathroom were all passive drops. Could that be from somebody carrying somebody that was bleeding? Certainly. Could that be from somebody under the influence of a near fatal level of Xanax stumbling around going to the bathroom? Absolutely. Um, could the palm, there, was, there were uh, transfer marks on the side of the tub and the sink. 
Could that be consistent with somebody trying to not be put into the bathtub? Sure. Is it also consistent with somebody potent under the influence of huge levels of Xanax, studying themselves to lower themselves into the tub? Absolutely. And you know, as an objective expert, your job is not to try and win anybody's case for them. Your job is to explain the physical evidence and let the jury decide what that means to the overall case. And being honest and objective, you have to give all possible scenarios. There are many types of blood stain patterns, most of which there are more than one mechanism that can cause them to look the same. For example, expirated can look very much like impact spatter, can also look like satellite spatter. And if all those mechanisms are possible in a case, then you have to say that. Now, if there's no blood dripping into blood, which is how we get satellite spatter, then you can rule that out. And then you can say it's consistent either with impact spatter or expirated. Now, if there was no blood in the nose, mouth, no wound where air would have been coming out, then you can rule out expirated and you're left with one possible cause, right? But that, that doesn't happen very often where you can rule out all but one thing. And so you, you have to give all the possibilities. Right. And I, I believe you said on, on the podcast, if not in, in the courtroom, but you said, it's not my job to determine guilt or innocence. Right. And, Which, you know, as an expert, as, as a person, seeing, you know, all of the information in a case, of course, we're going to have a, a thought about their guilt or innocence. But that is part of being objective. You absolutely cannot let that play into your analysis of the evidence. Um, and being truly objective is a learned skill. It really is. Um, and I, I didn't realize that because everybody said, you know, we ask jurors all the time. Well, have you seen any media coverage about this case? Yes. Can you put that aside and be objective? Yes. But, but can you really? Because you can't unhear it. You can't unread it. And unless you know how to divorce yourself from that information, it, it's tough. And yeah. it, it only happened to me with uh, this one case. It was a terrible case. Um, the, I was retained by the defense. The, the defendant was not likable. The family was not likable. Um, I hate, hated every minute of the case. But when I got to the end of it, something in my head said, you know what? You might need to go back through this just to, to make sure you didn't quote unquote accidentally miss something on purpose that might be useful sure. to them because you don't like them. And, and that was what made me learn to kind of hone this skill. And, and it's, it's critical that every expert is able to do that and many are not. Um, listen, as a psychologist, I have the same issue. I am, you know, I was trained in like, you know, postdoc, you know, blank slate, you know, lie on a couch three to four times a week. No one does that these days. Um, but I, I have to have that part of me, but then I also have to, I also react. I also reveal, I also allow people in a little so that they can feel more comfortable. But the toughest thing is to try to remain neutral. You know, right. um, of course I'm not dealing with dead people, so. <laughs> um, mine's a little yeah you know we all have backgrounds and and the way we were brought up and the ideals and morals that that our parents instilled in us and things like that 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 are so deeply a part of who we are that we don't even realize that they are biases you know and and you have to work to put those things aside and um and I think it's not a skill that a lot of people can master I agree. And so interestingly, when I initially started preparing this absurd Google Doc about you, that seems a little stalkery the more I talk about it. Um, <laughs> my first question ha had been like, how did you get into the field? And the next thing I wrote is, is having a vagina a detriment? And then I went on and on and on. And then this morning, after I, as I was listening to, um, to this podcast, I went back, highlighted that and wrote, well, clearly, because I, I just feel like, and this is just me, um, 
but we do have, you know, we have uh, gender biases, we have uh, race, race, religion, like we do have all these subconscious biases. And to hear, um, and my God, I love this podcast, but to hear Alexis describe it, like, you know, it was flash versus science. And, you know, just because you can't understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. I said points for Alexis, sort of, because why isn't, why, why aren't they mentioning the possibility of uh, some sort of subconscious gender bias among the, the jury? Like, you know, the term dueling experts is used. It's very like, uh, you know, the science is the science, but we've already discussed that's not true. And I, I tried to research, um, like to see if there's any empirical research that had been done on the difference between how expert, you know, courtroom expertise uh, is perceived when it comes from a man versus a woman. And I, I'm going to continue to, and then if I do find something, I'm going to do a bonus uh, episode of sorts. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. It shouldn't be that way. But as we just said, we don't get to decide. We can should all we want. That's not how the world always works, you know. Right. And, and I, I don't know for sure if, if that's the case or not. And I, if, you know, obviously I didn't talk to the jurors, but um, I think it often depends on, on the discipline too. Um, you know, like a, a female veterinarian, I do veterinary forensic cases as well. And, and many of the forensic vets are females and, you know, people love animals and things like that. And, and so I think certain discipline it may not be such an issue, but others that are more male dominated, it, it might be. I really don't know. I don't think about it too much, but but I think it's worth mentioning in that podcast, though, that what the jury foreman said that I said um, was not correct. I didn't say any of that. I think he was mixing up my testimony with the pathologist's testimony. So what did the let's let's clear it up. What did the um, what did the foreman say that you said? Well, he said something like that. I, I said that she committed suicide and that, um, you know, the bloodstains were a result of her being under the influence of Xanax and, um, and all these things that I kind of like, I gave a story about what happened and the manner of death. And I, and I absolutely did not do that. No, um, you don't do that. That's your whole point. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I never testify that way. And, and I think that he's, forgetting um because the pathologist was on right before me and she did say it was consistent with a suicide and and that you know it was consistent with her oh, oh and, and he said that I said she gave herself the Xanax I would never say that I'm there to evaluate the bloodstains I have nothing to do with that right um, and so when I testify I don't give a story about what I think happened from a to z I'm posed with with questions such as are these bloodstains consistent with X, Y, and Z happening? And the answer is yes or no. I don't put forth a story. I answer the questions that they, that they give me. Right. And I, I, you're right. The pathologist, or I, someone said, I, this is another quote I had, um, when they were talking about it being a murder, he got the Xanax inside of her, which was just so weird. Like how, you know, was it in her stomach? Was it in her, like, I don't know, you know, stomach contents. That's not, you know, it was just weird. It made me think icky yeah. things. So yeah, they only, uh, as I recall, it was found in her blood. There were no like fragments in her stomach or any of that. So there, there are a lot of issues with that, that matter that, you know, are, are obviously too, too deep to get into here and it's you know the, the case is still on appeal and and that sort of thing so um yeah it's uh it, you know it, it's not our job to come up with a narrative you know the attorneys could give us hypothetical scenarios or they can give us you know exact questions like could this be consistent with this action yes or no um but we can't get into give it you know our brains like a complete story and so if somebody is able to give them that complete story that makes it easier for them to wrap their mind around then that's the one they're probably going to go with sure. you know something that makes sense but um 
it was the defense pathologist. I should have been more clear that said that she could have, you know, taken the, the Xanax herself, that it was consistent with the suicide, that the wounds on her were in places that could be self-inflicted and all of those sorts of things. So let me ask you a question. Why is my mic doing it? That's not the question. Um, so when uh, I know that, so DNA was like 86, 87, somewhere, you know, uh, somewhere around there was when we first really started using uh, DNA in courts. It might've been 89. I know there's a case by us that was like the first time that they, um, that they allowed the use of DNA in court. Um, it was a girl named Kelly Antinez, and it, it's remarkable because in many other cases, they didn't, they weren't ready. So I, I feel like DNA first emerged then and has obviously become very far since. When did blood splatter analysis really begin to pick up momentum? I read the article. I know that it started a while ago, but... Um, yeah, but part of the reason I'm asking is that I, well, let me hear the answer and then I'll tell you. <laughs> so DNA started uh, being used regularly in the mid 90s. Okay. Um, so in this country, one of the first significant cases was that of Dr. Paul Kirk, which is, um, I, I'm sorry, boy, my brain is skipping today. Um, Dr. Shepard in Ohio. Um, that's the that's the 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 case that the movie The Fugitive was based off of. Okay. And Dr. Kirk is the one who uh, wrote an affidavit for it. Um, and that was. Well, I usually have this year right on the tip of my tongue. We're saying this is what for DNA or for um, blood stain. Oh, this is for blood stain. Okay. This was the first time in court. And I want to say it was in the fifties. And for some reason, my brain is skipping tracks today, but. Um, Herbert MacDonald did his research um, in, the, in the 70s, which um, completely reproduced uh, research done in Europe independently many, many years prior. So we've got these reproducible results. And then he taught his first um, blood stain pattern analysis course in 1973. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so it's it's been it's been quite a while. I mean, it gets, so it's, it's 1954. Right. It, it looks like 1954 is the date. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was 54 or 56. I think for some reason I'm thinking when my parents got married. <laughs> um, but the some of the initial first scientific research was done in the 1800s in in Europe. So you know, this is not a a brand new thing. And and just for the record. It's blood stain pattern analysis, even though a lot of people call it blood spatter. Thank you. Yeah. Spatter, spatter is only one type of blood stain. There are many different kinds of blood stains. So uh, the oh. reason I'm asking is because I, I don't, I, I, I always, I don't know how to phrase this. I sort of fell in love with um, a case, a, a murder, and it's uh, as yet unsolved. And it's, uh, it was 1986. Uh, the house is two and a half miles away from mine. I know because I walk there sometimes. It's fun. Take your children on murder walks. They'll, uh, they'll, they won't end up scarred for life or anything. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll be fine. Two shrinks as parents, they'll be fine. Um, but um, it was this woman, her name is Mindy Sue Schwartz. And um, she was married to a much older man, Sam Schwartz. She was his second wife. He lost a lot of money on that first um, divorce. And they were going through a very rough divorce. And um, she was found um, shot once in the head and three times in the heart. And the investigation just sort of stops, you know, like, and so it's my longer term goal to go through the FOIA or FOIL and get, you know, um, and track this down. Um, her, she still has, she has two brothers, both of her parents have passed, but we're a small enough town whereby, at, like I made a joke to one of my friends, my daughter's friend's mothers. <coughs> I discussed my murder walks and 
she knew the exact address, you know, she's like, Oh, 130 Woodmere Boulevard. I said, yep. And, um, I, before we started this crime podcast, I like for the last year, I have spent a long time trying to track things down and figure out whatever. And also to find out how a case just stops being investigated, you know? Um, and I think the, the answer is quite simply, um, there was a detective, John Nolan, who I believe retired around the same time, but I had never thought about this in terms of blood stain powder analysis. See, I corrected myself. Um, and it, and it, you know, it would be curious because she was literally shot inside her, inside her house, like, um, and nothing came of it. No arrest, no, you know, uh, it's, it's particularly interesting since Sam Schwartz's family was actually, they founded Paragon Oil, which was then became Texaco and like had bajillions of dollars. And, um, and they, you know, like I can walk to the houses around me. And so, I, you know, I'm curious as to how much it would have been in use then. Um, uh, and uh, somewhat, who knows? somewhat regularly, I would say, um, you know, Herb McDonald was probably the guy to go to then. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it may not have helped. Right. With... If you don't have a suspect, like if you don't have a sus, I don't know. It's like, if you don't have a, a suspect to how, uh, even if you do, if you don't have, tell me. It depends what kind of, what kind of listings you have, you know, sometimes they can help, um, steer the investigation. But unfortunately, all too often, bloodstains are not looked at until other things in the case don't add up, and then they start looking at the bloodstains. Um, an earlier look can be helpful. Um, you know, some of the things that bloodstain pattern analysis can tell you is um, what type of event occurred. Was it, you know, like a beating or stabbing or a shooting or a stomping, you know, that kind of thing. It can tell you um, sometimes, and, and all, of, all of this is prefaced by saying, not all cases can you tell the, all of these things on. Some of them you can't tell any of them. But some of the things it can tell us are um, how long an attack went on, um, if the victim moved after they were injured, if they were up and around, um, if the suspect was injured, and therefore which blood stains would be the best to analyze for DNA. Um, it can help, you know, support or refute statements. You know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, I came home and I found my wife all bloody on the floor and I picked her up and I cradled her when he's the one that bashed her head in. So in that case, we would look at the clothing and see what kind of stains do we see on there? Do we see impact spatter on there? Do we see transfer stains that are consistent with, you know, cradling your bloody wife? Um, Why does time make a difference? You said, you said depending on how early? Well, depending on what we get involved, we might be able to help with the, give them investigative leads. You know, if they have a, a statement from somebody who says, um, you know, I, I wasn't here, but there's spatter on the, so there, here, this is a, a good example. There was blood stains on a wall, there was spatter, and then there was an overlaid palm print of the, of the husband. And then some of the spatter which which kind of um, uh, wiped out the center of the blood stains of the spatter that was there, but then there was spatter on top of the uh, palm print, undisturbed. So that means that he was there after the beating started and before it ended. Right. Right. So it it couldn't have been that he came in and found her that way and you know when he lowered himself to the wall that was how his palm print got on the wall so things like that can be um useful right in the beginning of an investigation um i have one more question uh is there any particular case that sticks with you uh there's several but in different ways you know some of them stick with you for the brutality um, some of them stick with you for the injustices one way or another, whether wrongfully convicted or somebody that has gotten away with murder. Um, so that's 
Sounds like an easy question, but it's not. <laughs> no, it is because I think I think that great. I think that helps explain why I find this Mindy Sue Schwartz so um, why this sticks with me because it's it seems like it's such an injustice. She was young, you know. She was loved. I mean, obviously, we can say that about many people, but it's. Um, I, it's the fact that I can go on to fought, like the ex-husband's life. I can go on to see where he goes on to lead a life. And, uh, you know, it, it's, there is an injustice that I feel, which is why I am going to obsess over this as soon as I finish planning my son's bar mitzvah. So, you know, but, but I can imagine there is that distancing that you must have to do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and here's the thing. You know, it's not like on TV. Not every case gets solved, um, and, and they they stall for a variety of reasons. And you know, sometimes as everybody sees on TV now, many years later, something happens. People aren't as afraid to talk, and that sort of thing. Something happens, and, and cases are solved. But sometimes there just isn't the information. And and I just wanted to clear up one thing that, that you said earlier, we were talking about that, you know, police get a, a, an idea of what happened and look for evidence to support that. I, I would say that's true sometimes. And, and we call that tunnel vision. Um, it's certainly not true all the time. There are great investigators that are open to really reading the evidence and, and seeing where it takes them and seeing when it's ambiguous and and that sort of stuff. But but tunnel vision is definitely a thing and, and it happens. And thank you. I think that's I think that's a very important distinction to make. Um, you know, I I didn't mean to imply a plot imply real neither of us speak English. Uh, that that's what you know all cops do or um, but um, certainly on SVU they've got feelings and they're like 75% right. <laughs> Um, Anita, thank you for uh, so much for spending the time to talk with me. Um, uh, can you tell us the name of your website? I'll include all of it in the show notes because it's as I, I one of my other Lindsayisms was like you have created the your website is fantastically designed for the student, the teacher, and the creepy ass true crime podcaster. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank it, you. It, <laughs> it is www.az-forensics.com. And we will include that in the show notes. Thank you so much for talking. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast. If you like what you hear, Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, shout from rooftops, smoke signals, hot air balloons, whatever. I'll take any of it. Uh, and if you really like what you're listening, why don't you become a patron? Join our Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. Thanks. Thanks.